Hello everyone, welcome to episode 40 of Poetry Says, I'm Alice. I'm really happy to be putting this conversation out as episode 40. This is a chat I had with Ellen O'Brien and she's the first listener to get in touch with me and answer the question I have on my website which is what's a poem that gets you through the night? And the poem that Ellen nominated is called Willy Willy Will I by Alison Whitaker. Reading Alison's work, I felt like I had a real education in terms of some of the issues around Indigenous writers working in Australia at the moment. So I'm really glad that Ellen brought this poem to me. Ellen's also a poet whose work we'll soon see in an upcoming issue of Rabbit Poetry Journal in the Indigenous issue. And it was great to get to talk about some of the more difficult questions about being a poet in Australia at the moment with Ellen. We get into things like, where do you compromise? Who do you turn to for support when you are stuck in a poem? And how do you deal with rejection? That old chestnut. And we also talk a little bit about, is there such a thing as bad poetry, which is really fun. A quick admin note here, I've dropped back episodes from once a week to once every 10 days. Two reasons for that. Um, one is I don't think there's anyone out there frantically refreshing iTunes waiting for the next episode. If you're anything like me, you kind of let them bank up until you have time and then you listen to a few. Um, but if you are hanging out for the next episode and this change is frustrating, then do let me know. And the second reason is that I'm about to start running the monthly reading Sporting Poets here in Melbourne. This is a reading that's been run for three years by Bonnie Cassidy and Bonnie's handing the reins over to me. And I'm really hoping that I can bring you at least a few of those readings here on the website if you don't happen to live in Melbourne. If you do live here or you happen to know someone who you'd like to see read at Sporting Poets, then get in touch and let me know. I'm very open to ideas at this stage. So here's Ellen and I diving into Alison Whitaker's poem, Willy Willy Will I. This is so great because I'm, I'm nearly 40 episodes in to Poetry Says now and you're the first person to actually take me up on my offer of answering the question, what is the poem that gets you through the night? <laughs> That's a bit of an honour then. Um, yeah, I just, I've been listening to your podcast um, over the last couple of months and uh, just really valuing the space um, for conversation about poetry in particular. So as a poetry fan and amateur poet, I thought I would um, make contact. And yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm so glad you did. And I want to, I definitely want to hear about what you're doing with poetry as well as we get further into this. Mm. But the, the poem that you brought to me, I'm just so happy that you did because it's a writer that I feel like I definitely should have known about. It was a total blind spot in my reading. Um, yeah. And it's Alison Whitaker. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to start by sort of introducing the poem in terms of uh, what it means to you and why it does have that role of being one that gets you through the night? Sure, yeah. So um, Alison is a Gomorrah poet. Um, we're actually friends. We've known each other for a little while. And um, she just published her first um, collection of poems, I think it was last year. Um, and so the poem is called Willy Willy Will I from her collection Lemons in the Chicken Wire. Um, and I guess when I saw the question on your site about what poem gets you through the night, I think this one I connected with because it kind of felt like the answer to um, things that have kept me up during the night. So um, I'm Aboriginal. My family are connected to the Gurungai people um, around the Central Coast Hawkesbury area of New South Wales. And I guess the poem addresses a, a feeling that I have that has kept me up a lot at night of just like trying to furiously Google search um, stuff about family or culture and um, getting stuck in like research spirals um, and 
yeah, I often would do that at about 3 a.m. And then I think when I read this poem, it just, um, it felt like that experience had been seen and helped me sleep a little more peacefully, knowing that, like, I'm not the only one out there doing this sort of thing or having these sorts of feelings. So, yeah. Yeah, I I would bet not. I mean, isn't it interesting how the 3 a.m. research spiral is, mm. like, the most um, you, you just can't get out of it. You can't stop yourself. There's something about it being 3 a.m. that makes everything seem completely urgent. <laughs> totally, yeah. You wake up in the morning and look at your history and go, whoa, okay. Yeah, and just like having frantic notes or frantic screenshots and then the next day being like, what was the context for that? Like, where did that come from? Like, yeah, because, yeah, it all kind of ends up um, a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a whirlwind, which also suits the title of this poem, which maybe we can get into afterwards. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. The title's really intriguing, but it's a, a kind of on the surface seems like a really simple poem, but I think there's a lot going on in it. So mm-hmm. do you want to have a read? Sure. So this is Willy, Willy, Will I by Alison Whitaker. I am short and curled and hot by the Willy, Willy in an iron press check uniform dust gusts by the mural with brush handled dots and acrylic lines of corroboree i had to google to understand where is the diaspora of my people when both my feet are on land willy willy plucked it up and put it on the internet and that's the poem it's pretty um an impressive short poem as well yeah, it is impressive. It's got a real compression to it, um, a real economy of language and what it's doing. Maybe we should start by talking about Willy Willy and, and mm. what that signifies. Yeah, so it's funny. It's kind of one of those terms that I I have used and know of, but I did kind of have to Google to, like, make sure I had the right understanding because... Um, I guess it's something that maybe you use in your like community growing up or whatever or life growing up and then you kind of get a bit older and you're like oh maybe I should double check the meaning um yeah same I I, when I googled it as well I thought that's a word that I would have used in primary school Mm. um if you spot a willy willy in the playground it's this really exciting thing and everyone screams and starts running around after it totally and I think like I so the willy willy being like a dust storm or a bit of a whirlwind um picking up dust and um I think that's why I like that in this poem Alison is talking about being in the uniform because like it does seem like a really school experience or term or something like I had that connection as well which is quite interesting to hear you say that too that makes total sense now actually yeah I was thinking about the Czech uniform and thinking initially I thought maybe um working in maybe like a fast food joint or something like that but then it sounds like she's standing in front of or by standing next to the mural Mm. Um, and it makes a lot of sense in terms of often it is a primary school that will have a a mural like that on the wall yeah yeah so um I think I I quite like the image of the willy willy as this kind of um uncontrollable phenomenon um and saying willy willy plucked it up and put it on the internet and kind of for me the way that I connect to that little phrase is like maybe a feeling like a lack of control over cultural knowledge which you feel like you should have some sort of understanding of or control maybe control is not the right word but um I guess feeling like it maybe it's been taken from you without you having any sort of yeah ability to um to know that knowledge for yourself. So I think I like this image of something that is quite, you know, it is really, really awesome when you see a willy willy, but it is a little bit like, Oh, where did that come from? Or yeah. 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 I think there's something in the, so it's sort of broken into three stanzas. Mm. Um, There's a five line stanza to begin. And then there are two couplets and the first couplet, I think kind of, gets at what you're talking about there she says where is the diaspora of my people when both my feet are on land Mm. um there's something in that 
I can't quite put my finger on it, but it seems to be saying something about like you were talking about there, like control and use and dissemination of information. Um, mm. Yeah, it's yeah, really I think, interesting. I think my connection to that couplet, and that's kind of when I first read this and I've read this poem uh, like a number of times, mm. um, but I think that was the couplet that really hit me as a feeling that I've felt or, yeah, I've had similar feelings of, um, I guess, as an Indigenous person, First Nations person, you know, the concept of land is really important, connection to land is really important, but even, you know, I didn't grow up on the country that my family is connected to, so there was a bit of a feeling um, maybe when I got a bit older being like, if I am connected to that country, maybe that's, you know, the solution to this feeling of not knowing or like feeling unsure about who you are. Um, and then even when, you know, I have connected with that country, still being like, no, that, that didn't solve everything. And, you know, I still like even people who maybe haven't been displaced from their country and this feeling of, you know, whereas the diaspora of my people, which is, you know, usually a physical displacement, but even people like Alison, who I think grew up on her country, um, still not having this gap in knowledge, even when that connection to land um, physically might be really apparent. And yeah, I I just thought that was a concept that I guess I just hadn't hadn't seen expressed in that way, and I guess that's what I love about poetry is that it takes things that I've read in theory and puts an emotional element to it that I really connect with beyond maybe reading about these sorts of things theoretically. Yeah, exactly. She's done it so deftly, just four lines. Mm. Where is the diaspora of my people when both my feet are on land? Willy Willy plucked it up and put it on the internet. And um, it's, I mean, it seems like a really neat resolution at first, Mm. but then you realize, you know, that doesn't really give you anything. It just kind of says, okay, this knowledge um, that's, I guess, maybe kind of broken and shaky is now online, but what does that mean? Does that, Mm. like you say, it doesn't necessarily solve everything. Mm. to do that late night research and and find things out (laughs) and like often it can open a whole set of other doors um as you know and I think this poem you know I've been thinking about it over the last week or so in preparation for this conversation and thinking about this poem is obviously very specific to um I think Alison's experience as um, an Aboriginal person, but I think it's also a feeling that can be understood by lots of different people um, who go down those deep internet research holes, especially around family and maybe things that um, haven't been talked about because it's shameful. So then when you do find stuff out, yeah, it's not a resolution. It's kind of like, oh, like, now I, yeah, I can go down this rabbit hole and, um, but maybe still feel like you don't have anyone to talk to about it. Um, so you're just gathering all this knowledge and yeah, feeling a little bit stuck in some way. Yeah. What, what are the, um, what are the resources that you have to draw on when you're doing this kind of research? Are there kind of like repositories and places where you can search by name or by location or, what does that actually yeah. look like? Yeah, there's, um, I think for me, there are a lot of um, different places that have um, sort of services where you can you can look up things about your family, find different, um, uh, like, collections and things like that. So libraries, like the State Library of New South Wales um, has services, um Places like, I'm just looking up the <laughs> full name of it because I only know the acronym, um, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. Um, 
And there are other various services that can connect you, but I find that I often, because um, I know, I guess, a little bit about my family, I've found, like, newspaper reports from newspapers that in areas where they lived, um, even just finding stuff that other people from, you know, my sort of extended family have written and published online. Um, there's great resources about the history of Aboriginal Sydney, which has a lot of stuff about um, different groups that have been that have lived in Sydney um, or are from this area. Um, yeah, but it can kind of even like so in my job that I was doing, I was doing a lot of policy research for an Aboriginal organization. And I think Alison has spoken about or tweeted about this as well, because also working in research roles where you might um, be accessing different resources for your work and then you sort of stumble onto something that is related to your family or it reminds you of something and then you end up just sort of going down this path. So um, accessing like medical records or records of different um, hospitals where children were taken away, um, where Aboriginal mothers were um, sort of put to have their babies. And then, yeah, I've found out stuff about my family just by accessing that sort of stuff for work purposes and then realising that, you know, um, my grandma's mother was in a similar place like that and had children taken away from her there. And that was really unexpected. I didn't know that. but And it's a bit harrowing to have that experience at work where, you know, you're just trying to do your job and get paid and then you end up stumbling across this sort of family information which you had no idea about. So, yeah. God, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> across that in the course of your work day, my God. Yeah, it's pretty emotionally heavy and I'm, I'm no longer doing that job and that's kind of part of the reason is um, I think doing that sort of work is really, really great and valuable, but it can bring up a lot of, um, I guess, personal feelings and, yeah, it can be a bit of an take a bit of an emotional toll, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can only imagine. Mm. Um, actually, the, the unexpectedness of that event that is bringing me back to this idea of the willy-willy, the dust mm-hmm. gust. And when I was looking up that word again, I remembered that it was this idea of the dust devil or mm. the spirit <laughs> that apparently um, parents are sometimes threaten children and say, the willy-willy is going to come and get you if you don't behave. Uh, okay. I yeah. don't know. That's only one, one interpretation, <laughs> I'm sure. But um yeah, that kind of like mischievous, it's what you're talking about, it's not really a mischievous experience, but like unexpected and uncontrollable mm. um, type thing that she's getting at there. Mm. And I wanted to I wanted to talk as well about the title mm. because she's got the words in there, will I as well, that kind of question, the uncertainty of... Yeah. I mean, it's not really defined what the question is, um, and it could be. It could go in any direction. But how do you interpret that? It's funny because I was thinking about the title and feeling a bit confused and uncertain about, I guess, maybe how the will I connects to the rest of the poem. Um, and, you know, maybe that is the effect of that unfinished question um it it does feel a little bit like lurching like oh like I'm not quite sure where that was meant to be going um and I think I would maybe interpret it in the way that I've interpreted the rest of the poem which you know I've interpreted through my own experiences of um yeah this uncertainty around looking for knowledge or um, I guess maybe choosing, like, you know, because you can choose to um, access this knowledge or not, and I maybe that's how I connect it to the rest of the poem and being like, will I open this door or won't I? But, yeah, it's kind of a pretty amazing title because it can kind of take you wherever, I guess, you want to go with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It leaves it completely yeah. open. 
Mm. I like that interpretation, though, of, of will I do this, you know, this frantic Googling at 3 a.m. or will I stop mm. myself and, yeah. yeah, try and get a good night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though, but sometimes 3 a.m. is the only time to find this stuff out as well. It's like totally, yeah, it's the only time you're going to actually be motivated to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, it's an interesting time of the day. I think. <laughs> All those little fears and unanswered questions kind of start popping their head up. And, yeah, I guess you can entertain them or not. It's yeah. up to you. Mm. Although it does often feel uh, a little bit like you don't have that much choice when it's happening. Like, True, yeah. <laughs> this is happening now. Um, yeah. Something Alison said in an interview that I was reading was really interesting to me because she's talking about the way that she kind of wants her writing to operate on a couple of different levels. Mm. So she mentioned that she she does want to write. I think this is all paraphrasing, so I could be completely going off on the wrong track here. But what mm. I understood was that she wants to write for an Indigenous audience but also to allow white readers to have not necessarily access but like pique their interest in certain things mm. and and get them to kind of do the work and and find the interpretations of the terms they wouldn't understand or the themes and that really worked for me in this poem because um as I was sort of researching it and going through it I realized that there's this there's you know the the meaning of willy willy and there's also an area in the north coast of New South Wales which is named after that and that has its mm-hmm. own history. Um, and then I started looking further into Alison's writing in general and she's just done this great piece for Overland about the acknowledgement that people yeah. um, say before public events and mm. I'm just about to take on a role where I'm going to be in a position where I will need to say an acknowledgement and so I'm like reading that frantically going mm. oh I really want to know what to do but um yeah it's uh, I just feel like I've had this huge education just through this you know nine line poem it's, it's really mm. amazing yeah I actually as you were just talking I was just thinking of that piece the Overland piece which is funny um because I remember when I read that um, I think it was in response to something that was published in, I think it was the New York Times, um, by a person of colour living in America and talking about acknowledgements. Um, and, yeah, I think from my memory that was the context of why Alison wrote this article and um, about the perils of maybe trying to translate um, First Nations experiences in this country to... First Nations experiences elsewhere um, and then talking about the acknowledgement more generally um, and the process of that. But um, I just remember reading that piece and just being so full of admiration for her way of explaining ideas in a way that I it doesn't bend to non-Indigenous readers, um, but I think it opens doors for conversations. And I think she might have even said that in that piece of that's her intention um, or maybe in another piece. But, yeah, that intention of wanting to open conversations um, and doing it when talking about First Nations issues, doing it on the terms of First Nations people. Um, But I just think there's something about the way that she writes that communicates ideas really clearly um yeah and allows for that dialogue um to sort of take place I really admire it and I don't know how to do it in my own words so I think that's why I'm so yeah in awe of her way of communicating quite complicated ideas sometimes in a really um a really accessible way but yeah yeah and I, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, like, it's, I imagine it's a really tough balance to strike what you're talking about there in terms of um, writing, I guess, primarily for an Indigenous audience, but leaving the door open as opposed to thinking, okay, my audience is going to be kind of mostly white, mostly academic, mm. so I'm going to write on those terms. Mm. Um, I think it takes a lot of guts to go, no, that's not, that's not who I want to talk to. Yeah, and I think there's so many great, like, First Nation writers um, 
in this country at the moment that are doing that sort of work and sort of being unwilling to compromise, um, you know, the way they write or the way they talk um, because I guess they're just wanting to get their truth across and um, I guess maybe it's the motivation behind doing the work as well. Um, maybe not, not wanting to speak for anyone, but I guess speaking for myself as I try and think about writing, not being motivated by, you know, wanting to be successful, not having that as a primary motiva- motivation, but more of the motivation of being honest about who I am, my experiences, um, my family, that sort of thing, and having that as the primary motivator of communicating ideas rather than, you know, I want to get published by this like this um, journal or this um, publisher. And, yeah, I think it can be hard to move away from um, traditional sort of white Western notions of success and just come back and really focus on what you really want to achieve with your writing. But yeah, yeah. I think Alison does that pretty spectacularly. <laughs> yeah, and and is kind of building an audience in spite of or, you know, just within that kind of established mm-hmm. framework, I suppose. Totally. I mean, I'd like to think, and this is something that I tell myself often, although I do have doubts, <laughs> that... Um, <laughs> If you write honestly and authentically as yourself, mm. then the people who want to read that will come and read it. Yeah. Um, the times when I doubt that are the times when I think, well, it's all well and good, but um, the fact is that these certain people are in charge of these certain publications mm-hmm. and, and they're looking for this kind of thing. Um, but... I don't know. I just don't know how true that is. Like, I don't, I, it's probably not even very useful to think about really. Like it's probably more yeah. important to just get on with the job of actually writing stuff down. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's hard. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, and the concepts of good writing or bad writing and what that means and who decides what is good and bad and where those decisions are coming from and what cultural context they're based in. Um, but I think, getting wrapped up in those thoughts of myself but yeah it takes you away from just sitting down and writing and um I guess when you're initially writing something just trying to write it with an unjudgmental eye and then you can always come back and edit it but even in the editing process I guess I'm trying to be aware of like with poetry I guess I, whenever I write poems, I just write them for myself primarily. And it's usually if I'm really fixated on, you know, an idea or trying to figure it out in my mind, um, I write a poem about it. It just sort of happens because I'm just trying to process a feeling an emotion. Um, and I guess if I come back and I, you know, maybe want to edit it because I'm like, Oh, I'd quite like to share this with someone. It's fun to play around with things like, rhyme or rhythm or different um techniques to try and uh fit the idea I'm trying to express but I guess I'm always hesitant of being like I have to have these things in this poem um to make it worthwhile or to make it worth sharing um and so I think I really thrive off reading authors who I think try and do a similar thing of playing around with different techniques but not feeling like they have to use those things to um, share their work. And, yeah, I think I connect more to the authentic stories, especially in Alison's poems. Um, I think she's such a great storyteller. that, um, And she experiments with a lot of different techniques in her poetry as well. Um, and the story is strong no matter what she's doing, and I think that's the most important thing to me. Yeah, yeah. there's a, another really great poem of hers that I just read called Oh Eureka. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, that's fun. a good one. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's kind of playing around with this idea of um, academic language, language that is, you know, in, in a lot of ways it's kind of like uh, it's it's a gatekeeping language, I suppose. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I... 
I have some familiarity with it, but only enough to kind of know when to nod in a conversation. <laughs> um, oh, <God>. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of like, this is a point where you go, mm. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, like having been through uni, I, I, I can only imagine how totally alienating that language is if you haven't actually been in a, like a tertiary environment. And even when you first start out, at a university, it's just like, what are, what are all these people talking about? I don't know. <laughs> um, but that poem really plays with that because she's saying, look, I get all these words. I understand that they're important. In, they have this currency. Yeah. And this is how they apply in my life, you know, yeah. in a real sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard sometimes, you know, when you – have acquired that um, language as well. And I guess I realise what a benefit it is to be able to speak that language, like the academic language or, you know, my background is a legal background. So, you know, understanding like legal jargon and being able to participate in conversations um, and you're taken more seriously if you can express yourself in that way. But, um yeah, realizing that you've acquired this whole different way of speaking, but then kind of being like, yeah, how do I apply this to my life? Or I guess I think about communicating ideas in a way that, you know, my family could read something and connect with it in some way. Um, so trying to avoid overuse of that language. Um yeah, because it's a dialect, really, and and you are yeah. going to shut certain people out, even as you gain permission and admission mm. from from certain institutions. Yeah, so it's a really yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's a conundrum. Yeah, it is. It's kind of unsolvable. I know. Just like the Willy Willy Will I poem, I think there's no real answer. No, just... there's no real answer. <laughs> but that's what. Yeah. That's why it's. That's why it's such a great poem I think yeah Mm, yeah, it's fantastic yeah so with your own you were saying with your own poetry it's um mostly a case of kind of working through emotions and and them just kind of coming out um Mm. have you ever sent anything out for publication or anything along those lines or is Um, it more of a private a private thing I think this year I've kind of decided that I want to send things out and I've started doing that whole process and accepting rejection, which flows very readily, as I'm sure. Oh, yes. Aware and everyone who um, has sent anything out is aware. Um, but, yeah, I've, I have a piece. Um, one of my poems is upcoming in um, Rabbit Journal. Oh, so lovely. It's actually um, editing, guest editing, an issue so I have something upcoming in that and I recently read some of my poetry for the first time which was um a bit of a nerve-wracking experience but yeah I think it's been interesting so I've I've written poetry for uh, a long time like as long as I can remember in some form um and so it's a bit of an interesting process going from having you know these private poems that maybe I've shared with a couple of friends or whatever to thinking about yeah translating them in a way that I guess is acceptable by you know literary journals or um yeah different places where they're being sent off to but I'm enjoying it I think I'm enjoying the I'm enjoying playing around with different techniques and learning more about techniques and um, seeing how they work or seeing what techniques I was already following without realising, which I think you talked about in the the rhythm um, podcast that you did, um, the rhythm basics, and Mm. sort of saying that, you know, mostly you kind of know the rhythm of a poem when you're writing it or reading it. kind of instinctively so and I think you know I with the piece that I sent off to um rabbit journal I had written it just one day when I was walking around the park at work um in my lunch break and it kind of had this rhythm to it and then I think I you know 
came home and was kind of reading a bit more about rhythm techniques and then was like, oh, yeah, I was already doing that, like, you know, and kind of tidy things up a bit. But it's, I think that's interesting to me to think you kind of have a natural sense of what you're, what you're trying to communicate and, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Acquiring the language to explain it in this, like, more academic way um, and play around with it a bit. But, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, I don't know, it's it's such a funny thing because I think a lot of it does happen instinctively. Um, yeah. And you can definitely go back and go, okay, what was what was in operation there in that poem? If you want to, you can you can kind of pick it apart. Like we could look at this poem of Alison's and say, mm. all right, well, this these five lines are together for this reason and then, then yeah. the, the two couplets are here for that reason and the line break has to be there, it can't be anywhere else yeah um and it could be that those decisions were made really really consciously and i think a lot of poets do that and Mm. i think there are a lot of poets who like you are just a lot of it's instinct Mm. yeah Um, yeah there's a another really great um first nations poet elizabeth jarrett whose poetry i've heard her read it a couple of times and um I think she's like, I feel like her poetry is just so raw and so effective. And a lot of it seems, I haven't ever talked to her about it, but a lot of it seems really like instinctive um, and just her telling her stories. And I feel like I connect with that sort of poetry in such a different way to a piece where maybe, you know, I can tell that it's technically really great, but if I'm, not seeing the story or I'm not connecting to the story as much. It doesn't quite have the same effect. Um, even if I can acknowledge that it's technically a brilliant poem. So, yeah. Yeah. I think these things are like, there's different priorities for different readers Mm. for sure. I mean, other readers would say, Oh, I need that. I need to see like, there's more work been done, you know? Yeah. And some editors will probably think that too. I mean, I think that's probably good to know as you, step out into that wonderful world of acceptance and rejection yeah (laughs) Um, (laughs) it just depends like what they're um what they're prioritizing totally Um, and I think for me like when I was talking about good and bad writing I feel like that's kind of the point I've come to is that I don't I don't personally think there's any such thing as good and bad writing but I think there's writing for certain contexts and I guess if you're writing towards having it published by a certain um journal or something like that like yeah you probably are going to have to take a different approach to your writing or be a bit more mindful about what you're doing or um there's a sort of literary type of writing sure but you know I don't think with poems especially I don't know if I think there's a good or bad poem I think there's poems for different purposes and poems that different people will connect with and um we'll see as good or bad, whether or not, yeah, they have that connection to it. Yeah. That's such <laughs> That's an interesting question. Hey? Like, I think there are definitely poems that do bad things. Mm. Um, I keep thinking of this one example. Anyone, anytime anyone brings up the question of whether there's such a thing as a bad poem, I think of this one reading I went to and there were these three older women who had put together a collection of their own poetry about the Syrian refugee crisis right yeah and there was set there were kind of like fairly affluent older white women not there's anything wrong with that at all mm-hmm. but um they were the the thing that that irked me was they were reading these very lament like poems mm-hmm. and they had this chat book and they said so the book is 15 pounds and five pounds of it will go to syrian refugees mm. i'm just like what <laughs> Well, I'm yeah. sorry, what? Maybe, maybe I do need to qualify my earliest statement. <laughs> I don't know, it's... right? But, like, for mm-hmm. them, it's like they're getting these feelings. Like, it was, you know, it's very affecting for them. Yeah. They needed, they needed to write these things. I think the way they were selling it was totally unethical. Mm-hmm. But um, so I guess that's what I mean by poems doing bad things. But Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's true because I'm thinking, you know, I've been in – contacts especially like spoken word or open mic poetry things where yeah um 
Yeah, I've had some pretty funny reactions to some poems, um, well, <laughs> kind of of a similar extent. But not, yeah, I guess maybe not not like the way it was written, but more, I guess, um, maybe people just not being that self-aware about who they are and um, the way they're engaging with certain topics. But, yeah, so maybe I need to have a bit more think about um, the good and bad poetry question or good and bad writing question. Well, but, the, good, the good thing uh, is that you're you're in a position at the moment where it, it only matters for your own work, right? So, true. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah. and what you like to read and what what resonates for you. So that's the exciting thing. Totally. Is, yeah, you get to to make these calls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this point. Um, but yeah, I will say I'll reiterate one, something that my favorite one of my favorite comedians, um, Pete Holmes, said about getting into comedy. Which is like if you're getting booed off a stage, getting rejected, if you're bombing, then you're in the game. So yeah. Welcome. True. Yeah. <laughs> and I think of that when whenever I get rejected. Um, yeah. That it's it's a sign that you did something. And my grandmother wrote a lot of poems and short stories, and she did an Emily Dickinson on us, and basically never sent them anywhere. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and so I I basically, you know, and, and at first, especially, like, it stung so hard, like, getting there, you know, it would be days of, like, mourning over this rejection. Mm-hmm. Now it's, like, minutes. It's, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it does, it definitely gets better. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you're coping fine with it anyway, but, yeah. I think, I think very quickly I went from maybe spending a few days of, like, oh I feel a bit like worthless blah 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 to very quickly yeah moving on um from it I don't quite know why but (laughs) well I think you just got a thicker skin and it also um if you've had a few acceptances that helps a lot yeah um and if it also depends on how much effort you've put in like if yeah this was like your one poem that you worked for months on um like I worked on a piece last year for like ages just Mm -hmm. ages um it wasn't a poem it was a in the end it was a mess because I didn't know what the hell I was doing but basically I sent it (laughs) out to this competition and it was a competition that had a long list and I'm like sweet I'm getting on that long list yeah (laughs) at least and then I didn't (laughs) I was like really stung because I just put so much time into it That's true, actually. Like, I think a few of the things I've had rejected recently, I'm like, yeah, I can see why. Like, I kind of rushed it or did it a bit last minute. Um, And I guess it's a bit easier to accept that because I'm like, yeah, I didn't, like, put in the effort necessary um, to maybe have that be accepted. (laughs) But, yeah, I think also, like, what I found really great about like reading my work, like reading poetry, I guess you get that instant feedback and that instant kind of like ego boost of, you know, especially I was reading mostly to people I knew. So, um, you know, they all had nice things to say about it. And I think that's quite um, reassuring to have like a community that can sort of tell you you're okay, even when you're getting all these rejections. But yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I guess is it is there something too about hearing the lines out loud and in front of an audience that gives you some really great feedback about what to change and what to cut? Yeah, I found like even just in preparation for it beforehand, um, I read like literally an hour beforehand, read a few poems to um, my housemate and a friend of ours who was over. And even just doing that, I guess like reading it to someone – you know, I was like, oh, like that word's quite not right. Or yeah, maybe I need to um, change the phrasing or something like that. I guess because I'd read them out to myself, but there's something about having someone sitting there, I guess, that maybe you're being a bit more purposeful about the way you're um, communicating the message. So I found that really helped me um, and makes me keen to do a few more um open mic things and just kind of yeah I guess get over the nerves of sharing things with people um and yeah I think it can only help 
yeah. like to grow. So yeah. yeah, such a great thing to do. And also having people around you who are willing to listen totally. to your work is, is so valuable. Like yeah. I'm really lucky at the moment and having a few people around me that I feel I can send things to. Yeah. Um, and often a good test is how embarrassed I feel sending that email. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> it's like, uh, is this, am I excited to send this out or am I thinking, yeah. God, I hope they don't notice, you know, whatever it is. And then obviously yeah. you've got to go back in and fix that thing rather than send it out. The collaborative nature of it mm. is really important. And I think that's something that that I definitely skipped over. I spent like seven years just writing alone and mm-hmm. sending out to journals and getting either rejected or accepted, mostly mm-hmm. like nine times out of 10 rejected. Yeah. And um, since I started actually sharing my work with people, it's like getting supercharged. It's it's just amazing. And I'm like, ah, oh, wish I'd done this before, you know? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I I definitely think like it's, the quickest way to get to improve your work or yeah I guess what you were saying about that feeling of the nerves when you send it off to like a friend um and I feel like even that because I was I was talking to someone about like writers groups and they were like oh what do you think you would get out of you know going to a writers group or um and I was like I think even just for me the process of reading it out to someone makes me reflect on my own work whereas even when like editing it myself like written editing um I think I'm just not quite as aware of what I'm doing whereas reading it out I just you hear everything you hear every little weird phrase or something that could be a bit tighter or expressed um with more clarity yeah, you just hear it. I think I'm I'm quite a uh, like I learn things by hearing them as well. So that's probably also why, mm. as opposed to reading it. So you know, when I have to memorize things, like I just have to say them to myself, um, and that's the way I learn. But yeah, so I think it's the best way for me to improve my writing is having lots of wonderful friends that will listen and even having conversations with friends about whatever it is I'm writing about. I think that's a good way as well. Yeah. Just to make sure yeah. you've got the, the ideas straight in your mind. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about writers groups too, is I think like people resist them a lot of the time because they think that a lot of people there will be bad and the Mm -hmm. fact is like they will be and that's great Mm -hmm. yeah because then (laughs) you can see what is not working and you learn so much from the bad writers in your group (laughs) yeah I I think I think maybe it's also for me like the fear of being the bad writer and again I guess I'm thinking about what is good and bad and how do we define that um especially when a lot of what is considered good literary writing I think is really based on white western um concepts of communication and narrative um structures and things like that um but I think I've accepted it. I'm like, I'm okay if I'm the quote unquote bad writer in the group and like my work can only improve, you know, if I read something to them and they're like, Ooh, like a bit cringe or whatever. I'm like, it can only improve from there, I think. And I've accepted that that's okay. Um, the only thing holding me back is my ego. (laughs) Well, it's, it's interesting. You're kind of touching on something that was in that, um, episode of commonplace, the podcast that I was chatting about a couple of weeks ago, Mm -hmm. there's an interview with this guy called Terrence Hayes, who's just a really, really fantastic poet. And he talks a lot about reading to people, but basically not wanting any feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, he just wants to hear it out loud in front of an audience so that he can have that kind of, you know, hear what it sounds like. Mm. Um, But he also talks in that episode quite a bit about something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is like that gut feel of this is the right title or this is the right line break, this is the right word. Even if everyone around me is saying 
that makes me uncomfortable or whatever. Yeah. Um, just holding on to that because if you compromise on that one thing and then it gets mm-hmm. accepted or then it gets mm-hmm. rejected, like you've got to live with that as well. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. But that's really hard because that, that involves like getting to hear your own, getting to be able to hear your own intuition. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's my other thing with going to providers groups. Like I think sometimes from my observation, like there can be a bit of a temptation to fit your writing to whatever the mold of that certain group is. Um, Cause I think a lot of groups do have a certain mold of writing or what, what is considered good and bad and things maybe get shaped in a certain way. But Mm. I still think you can go along and get the feedback get the group feedback. But for me, it's like, I, I guess if I can justify why I've written something a certain way and then someone says you need to change it, I don't have to change it. Like I, as long as I can sort of go, no, like this is why I did it. Even if that why is like, I did it because like my gut feeling is that's how I want to express it. Um, yeah, I guess if you have that knowledge going into those spaces, it makes it a little bit easier to navigate and easier to accept people's feedback and then figure out what you want to do with it rather than just feeling like you have to change everything and, um, or delete a whole piece or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, no, which you, you might do anyway. <laughs> you might, but you want to be the one who deleted it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. I feel like we talked about some things that basically no one ever talks about in, the, in this conversation. So that's so, so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 